All right, I appreciate that, teens, and glad for each one of you who's able to be here tonight. We'll be in Luke 14, as you can see on the screen there, and uh, I'll explain the, uh, the little uh, speedometer kind of thing in just a bit, but uh, grateful for, again, for you being here, grateful for your support for the teens and support for the church and our pastor, and uh, just grateful for folks who want to come out even on a cold, snowy Sunday night and learn more about God and grow more like Him. And that's really what the, me the message will be about in just a moment. But I wanted to comment. I love that song, Just As I Am. I like the extra words, kind of the bridge that's added in, but just the classic hymn as well. Because really, that's how we all come to the first part of Pastor John's message for that saving grace that he talked about this morning. Just as I am, we have nothing to offer God. But even as Christians, and I've been saved for over 30 years, some of you got that beat, I understand, I'm not bragging by any stretch, but simply no matter how long we've been saved, whether 30 minutes, 30 days, or 30 years, or, or a lot longer, when we come to our Savior and we want to just grow in Him and enjoy that relationship, we're coming just as we are. We're coming just as I am, and He wants to take us and really take us through those steps of grace that Pastor John did an excellent job preaching this morning. I so enjoyed that message, and it goes so well with that song, I feel like. And God wants to take you right where you're at right now and help you to grow, help you to grow more like Him, help you to be more ministry-minded, as we'll look at tonight. And that doesn't just apply to you, that applies to me so much. And it's just so exciting to see some teens that are excited to do that. Now, you don't get to see, most of you, the teens that only come on Wednesdays. Maybe they have different churches that they go to on Sundays or different things like that. But there's some teens that are hungry, that are looking to grow in the Lord there on Sundays and Wednesdays as well, and certainly some kids as well. And you probably hear us through the floors sometimes and all of those sorts of things. We're grateful for the support of the church, the support of our pastor, and God's doing something. And it's exciting to see. I won't embarrass anybody. I'll try to look up above all the teens or over here where they're not seated. But uh, it was just this morning, one of our teens eagerly came up to me after service and uh, was following up on, on, hey, Pastor Kent, I, I'd asked you about this way to get involved in comfort care. And did you, did you send that email? Did you get back? And I, and I had. I had answers for that teen. And it's something that, 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 that this individual will be able to do. And it's just so exciting. And we could go on and on with those examples. And it's just exciting to see what the Lord's doing. And I realize it's not just the teens. I brag on many of you as adults and what the Lord's doing through you as well. Uh, let me just say this in a small way. It's been fun to see the church just appreciate my daughter. Brooklyn's so excited to have her birthday and to turn six. We won't sing to you right now or embarrass you too, but she says no. But uh, I just, I love our church family 365 days a year, but sometimes it's just extra special when, when my family has something going on like that. Just, you guys have just been awesome. Uh, I mean, some of you gave gifts, and if you didn't, please don't. I'm not asking for that at all. She has plenty. But uh, a lot of you, uh, I mean, Jake Tomlin in the, in the Army at, at Fort Bragg, he texted to, to wish Brooklyn a happy birthday. Just a church family uh, just loves on our family, and I sure appreciate that. Uh, I don't want to take that for granted, and I don't. Uh, that means so much. Well, as we look at Luke 14 tonight, Sammy read a bit of it earlier, and it's really several parables or excuse me, different things that happen, and they tie so well together. We'll go through a good bit of the chapter fairly quickly, kind of catching an overview of several stories and several things that happen. But uh, I wanted to use this, this silly image, just of a, of a speedometer or a gauge to measure it, and uh, the, where I got the graphic had kind of a 25% and a 50%, I think that one's 75%. 
I don't need a number. I don't really care what percent you or I would be at. We're coming just as we are to God. But I hope we'll leave tonight challenged to be more ministry-minded. Now, we're familiar with the idea of wanting gauges to go up. Um, maybe that's a, a car has been struggling a little bit. You've been doing some work, maybe spending some money, and you sure hope that speedometer will go up a little more than what it was clunking down the road at before. Any of you desperately had some prayer times hoping that uh, gas, um, gas gauge would uh, stay just a little bit above E um, for just a little bit longer? If you're anything like me, the Christmas cookies and candy, that, that scale needs to go backward a little bit. I, that, that gauge needs to move a little bit. Still working on that. But as we come here, maybe you're thinking, all right, Pastor Kent, I'm not in ministry. Well, ministry means to serve. Jesus came to minister or to serve, not to be served or to be ministered unto. We are all in ministry, and we can all be ministry-minded. If that's a Sunday-only thing, or a pastor's and Sunday school teacher's or deacon's only thing, man, we're missing it. Maybe for us it's that we just want our bank accounts to grow or a recognition from other people or a trophy case, so to speak, to grow. Luke 14 is a great gauge, a great measure of where we're at in our personal ministry, our service to our Savior and the people he cares about. And it's not at all about where we're at. It's about moving forward, getting the mind of Christ in these areas just a little bit more tonight all about showing us how we can become more like our Savior, ministering like Him, serving like He did and still does, sacrificing like He showed us how to do. So let's take a look where we're at and how we can grow in our ministry and our service for our Savior. Let's pray and we'll get into Luke 14. Father God, thank you for the privilege of gathering together. Thank you for our church. Thank you for a ministry-minded church and so many ministry-minded folks in this church looking to serve inside these walls and outside these walls. Thank you for many who we get to support serving you around the world. I pray that all of us will, will allow you to take a look at our hearts, see where that gauge would be spiritually, just really see where we can become more ministry-minded, not wanting to be about temporary things, but about eternal things, not wanting to be about selfish things, but about ministry things that will impact others and ultimately bring you glory. If there's any area in my life and in any of our lives where we can improve I pray that you'll show us those and help us to respond well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. First of all, I want to look, we'll be in Luke 14 starting in verse 1 in just a moment, but which way is your drive driving you? Now you should have some drive. The Bible's not real big on laziness. Uh, we should have some drive, some ambition, some, some get, get at it, some motivation. But we should be motivated in the right things in the right direction. I read kind of a summary of a report from 2014 back a little while ago now. Hard to believe that's eight years ago. That's ridiculous. But uh, way back then, and uh, it said that an average of 269 fatal crashes resulting in 359, or 300, yeah, 359 deaths occurred each year in the United States, at least in the eight years they surveyed, simply from people driving on the right road the wrong way. They had some drive. They were moving, apparently pretty fast, but going the wrong direction. And if that's you, if that's me, we're not saying stop. We're not saying don't push, don't work. Let's just make sure that drive is driving us in the right direction. How many of you are like me and you've seen people go the wrong way right out here on Route 11? It's just us. Anybody admit that it was them? 
I did get a speeding ticket right down here, but I don't think I've ever gone the wrong way uh, on Route 11 there. But uh, now my wife does say that uh, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, is the worst on random one-way streets. I mean, you'll be driving there, and all of a sudden, I mean, it's two ways, you're two lanes, you're getting passed, 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 and that's a one-way road. And all you passed was an intersection. Very confusing. One of my pastors growing up even had a car accident because he was confused by that. But let's take a look at which way our drive should be driving us. First of all, in Luke 14, 1, and I won't read all of every part at once. We'll break it up a little bit since there's a lot of awesome stuff here. But in Luke 14, 1, we'll see how Jesus was driven. He was motivated to minister even to a Pharisee and some other Pharisees. Those who mostly rejected and even opposed him. People who are trying actively to trap him and trick him here. And he still went to a Pharisee's house. He still wanted to minister, to serve, to help a Pharisee. He was putting it out there long before he was crucified. He was risking so much to have an impact on people. And we should properly too. Luke 14, 1, it says, And it came to pass, as he, Jesus, went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Now, I can't guarantee that it was the chief Pharisee there whose house it was that was trying to trap Jesus, but many were. Jesus knew it, and he was still willing to go. Even a Pharisee who did some of the worst harassing of Jesus of anybody on earth at the time, even a Pharisee was worth Jesus' time. Who does your drive direct you and drive you to care about? The Pharisees here are going to be real concerned about their man-made traditions, not the ultimate message of hope that Jesus has to offer. Is that what drives you? That was what drove them. Their routines, their rituals, their tradition, their purpose, their plan. Jesus had something so much better. In Luke 14, 2 and some following verses, we see that Jesus was willing, driven to minister, even to just one a man who most would have just simply overlooked, a man who was maybe there just to test Jesus. The Pharisees might have had this this ill man there just to test Jesus, but Jesus was willing to minister. Notice in verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy, so an illness. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, those watching him, trying to catch him in a mistake, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and he healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. The Pharisees seemed so concerned with defending their traditions, routines, rituals, man-made rules, even to the point of trying to trap Jesus here. Their drive was driving them towards self-righteousness, toward caring about their agendas more than their Savior, and even more than this sick man. Kind of as a side note, before we continue, it amuses me how people would get mad at Jesus for healing someone on the Sabbath as if it took work. He did it with a word, a thought. It didn't even take work anyway. But it's amazing how Jesus is driven even to try to influence these Pharisees. He's driven to minister even to one. When, as we'll see toward the end of the chapter, we'll just touch on around verse 25 or so, but there's multitudes following him. And his drive drives him to take risk while doing right, but to take risk, even to reach one, even to invest in those like the Pharisees who don't like him and who are opposing him. And he was able to influence so many and really gives us a great speedometer to test our own spiritual ministry-mindedness. A 
as we see his drive, driving him to care about individuals. Our ambition should drive us to serve God and others, not ourselves. So whose credit and glory are we seeking? Jesus got none from the Pharisees, but he was still willing to serve them. It's kind of funny. This is the last couple of days has been illustrated to me in a very, very amusing way. I don't actually know the, the full story here, but my mom was talking to me on the phone yesterday, I believe it was, and saying how much my grandpa, who lives in Pennsylvania, really enjoys hearing me preach on the DVDs I give him. And I'm scratching my head. I send my, my grandpa DVDs frequently of the girls singing. I think my family sings next Sunday night in church. And uh, so I'll probably send him a DVD copy from our live stream of, of that. He doesn't do the smartphone thing or anything like that. But uh, I figured it out, I think. I sent him recently, actually gave him one in person and mailed him the other, I think. But um, both of our Christmas programs, the, the children's one and the adult one. My grandpa also commented how Southern I sounded when I preached. I'm pretty sure it was either Brother Aiden or Pastor John. Now, I don't know who I look or sound more like to my grandpa. His eyesight isn't as strong as it used to be. But, uh, yeah, we could, apparently I'm stealing some of one of your credit. I don't know, maybe both. I'm really not sure. Um, because my grandpa apparently admitted to my mom that I don't sound that Southern when I was in person talking to him, but apparently he thought I sounded Southern there. So one of y'all definitely sounds Southern. I don't know, maybe I had sent him a DVD I forgot about. But we could get really concerned, even in something like that. Of it. Who, who preached that? Whose credit? My grandpa got blessed by the Word of God. That's awesome. We're not worried about that. And what a blessing everyone who had a part in those Christmas programs was. And boy, my grandpa and others really do enjoy seeing those by live stream and the different ministries we have, obviously in person as well. But if we'll not worry about being so driven to get the credit, so driven about what other people are going to think about us, we can be so much more ministry-minded. It can be such a wonderful thing. Let's be driven, motivated, ambitious to accomplish great things for God as he allows. And let's let him get all the credit. So first of all, which way is your drive driving you? Second, as we continue through this awesome chapter, where are you focused? Where are you focused? And I want to look, look at Luke 14, starting back in verse 7. And he, that's Jesus, put forth a parable to those which were bidden. Sammy read this a bit ago. When he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not thou, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, uh, and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of him that sat at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Goes right along with point one there. But where's our focus? I, again, simple illustration. I probably use it all the time. But if you're looking that way and trying to run that way, it's probably not going to work very well. And again, I, I would love to take everybody in here and try that later with video cameras rolling in the snow. No, maybe not in the snow. That might not work out well at all. But uh, some of you know how clumsy I can be. And the teens get really nervous up here if I, if I step anywhere close to the steps because they know I might fall. But uh, it just wouldn't work. If we're looking that way, we're going to run that way. Or if we're trying to run that way, eventually it's going to angle us that way. So how ministry-minded are you based on where you're focused? 
You have ministry focus or self-focus. In, in this parable, in this account in Luke 14, it was the Sabbath. God should have been the focus. Using the parable that Jesus told, let, let's base that there. Who should be the focus in a wedding? You can answer. It's okay. There really is only one right answer. Okay, God, yes, we know God should be the focus in all things. Besides God, who should be the focus in a wedding? The bride, her, not him. You can glance at him once in a while if you have to, but uh, she should be the focus. All the girls probably knew that one right off, probably the guys too, but uh, the focus matters. The bride should be the focus in ministry here. It was the Sabbath, the day of rest set aside, the Lord's day to focus on him, and they're focused on tripping Jesus up. Even if they were rejecting Jesus, which they were, they should have been focused on God. They should have been wanting to serve God, focus on God, minister to God, and even do what they could to help this sick guy with the dropsy that Jesus ended up helping. Their focus is so far off, and ours can be too. Let's be ministry-minded by keeping the right focus. So it was the Sabbath. God should have been the focus. It was also life. Others should have been the secondary focus way before themselves. It was in verse 8. That says, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, like many of them had done right there, not at a wedding, but at that Sabbath meal, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And then if honor is due, let God be the one to give it to you. Simple question, simple as anything, but who's better at honoring you and me, people or God? God, you ever been honored by God? That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, that's just a youth pastor's way of putting it, I'm sure. But it's amazing to have God honor you. And maybe that was some financial blessing. Maybe it was an answered prayer. Who knows? Maybe it was something that you did that God was honoring and rewarding you for, humble ministry. Maybe it was just you have no idea why God did it. He just is awesome, and he did it. Being honored by God is something that's worth everything. We don't have to worry about temporary honor. But apparently, the that's my seat goes back a long ways. I was commenting to someone before service. Um, I think it was Miss Gale who was wondering where to set something for us. I said, well, that, that's normally where we sit. But I was quick to say, anybody can sit there. I don't care. And we're not even sitting there tonight. But uh, you know, some people can really want to sit in the, same, in the same seat. And I don't blame you. I'm a creature of habit as well. But apparently, that issue goes back there. But if we'll keep the right focus way beyond where we sit, Man, God will do something special. And if God's the one honoring us, not us honoring ourselves, not us constantly seeking the praise of men, but the praise of God, we'll have much more of a ministry mindset. There's a wrong way to be recognized and to seek recognition. There's also a right way to be recognized, and God will do it in his perfect time. And if God chooses to elevate and exalt you, even then, we still need to stay focused. The, the illustration, the parable that Jesus tells is of a wedding. And I don't think this was a, a rare occurrence for people to want the best seat at a wedding. And maybe they got it. Maybe someone, and I get that it was cultural, but maybe someone seated way back there and the, the host family or whomever it is calls them up and, no, oh, have this seat of honor. Whether they're seated in the back or the front, the bride should be the focus. And it's so easy to get so concerned about our own honor and all of that and to lose that focus. Sometimes God honoring us is a test. Wow, he just gave us something good. Are we going to take it easy or are we going to stay focused? 
Man, at a wedding, focus on the bride, whether you're in the back, the front, the place of honor or not, the head table or the last table, who cares? Honor the, the bride and the groom, of course, as well. But that's where the focus should be. So in life, whether we're receiving honor or difficulty, let's keep our focus. Story is told of the great golfer Arnold Palmer that uh, he recalled a lesson about overconfidence and losing his focus. It was the final hole of the 1961 Masters Tournament. And he says he had a one-stroke lead and just had hit a very satisfying tee shot. He said, I felt I was in a pretty good, in pretty good shape as I approached my ball, about to win the Masters. I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. He motioned me over, stuck out his hand, and said, congratulations. Problem was, it wasn't over. I took his hand and shook it, but as I did it, I knew I had lost my focus. On my next two shots, I hit the ball into a sand trap, then put it over the edge of the green. I missed a putt and lost the Masters. He says, you don't forget a mistake like that. You just learn from it and become determined that you will never do it again. He says, I haven't in the 30 years since at the time of that writing. Let's stay focused on what matters most. Let's stay focused on ministry. Maybe it's like the first part of chapter 14, and you got some people trying to trip you up. Jesus did, just did right. Explained what he was doing and kept going. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we, for us, getting unfocused is so much on, well, they're doing wrong and that needs to stop before I can go on. No, you ever have to minister to someone who's doing wrong? We've never ministered to someone who wasn't, you know, who was perfect. All of us are imperfect. Let's stay focused on serving and ministering for our Savior. So where are you focused? Constantly staying focused on what matters will really help us stay ministry-minded. Next, let me just ask you this. When's payday for you? When are you looking to get paid? I guarantee everyone with a job thought of their payday, and that's fine. I mean, you know, your boss says they're going to pay you every other Friday or this, you know, first of the month, last of the month, whatever. They better do it. I mean, that's kind of how that works. But for us, it goes a little deeper. And this is an easy way to see how ministry-minded we are and a great way to improve. We'll start in verse 12 in just a moment, looking at this idea that we should minister for others, not for temporary reward. Jesus continued, then said he also to him that bade him, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and a recompense be made thee. So in other words, don't just do something nice for those who are going to be able to pay you back. When's payday for you? It's nice to uh, do a friend a favor, knowing that next week, okay, yeah, they just borrowed my truck. I need to borrow something from them next week. I need to borrow that snowblower or whatever it may be. Easy to do things for people that we know are going to pay us back right away. Jesus is saying, hey, no, 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 ministry mindset, there's a bigger picture here. Don't do things just for people who can do something back. Minister, help, invest in people that can't give you anything in return. I hope to see some people in heaven that I ministered to, and the only reward I ever get is to see them in heaven. <laughs> There's nothing I could receive that's better. Now, I'm not saying I got a list of people that I'm expecting to be in that situation. I'm just saying I hope that is the case. I want my ministry, my life, and when I say my ministry, yeah, I get paid to work full-time here at Marlbrook, and I'm so grateful for that. But my ministry is my entire life. Your ministry is your entire life. It's everything we do. It should be. 
Absolutely. And I've said it a lot, I think, lately to the teens, but I've known of people who were, we use the term lay people, they were not paid full-time Christian service people. They worked wherever God called them, and they made a bigger difference than some pastors and missionaries. Absolutely can happen if you're ministry-minded. And if we'll say, okay, payday may not be until heaven, that's fine. And all of a sudden, it becomes where we're so focused on just serving our Savior and that being the reward. Yeah, he can reward me in heaven. He can reward me. It doesn't even matter. That's not even my focus. But God does reward. Minister for others, not just for temporary rewards. But then I'm convicted of the fact that verse 13 will mention some of these things. But poverty, injury, lameness, blindness, those can be spiritual, not just physical. Verse 13 says, but when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. A lot of people that wouldn't be able to give anything back. And thou shalt be blessed for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. He's saying, hey, do things for the people I love, Jesus is really saying. And there'll be a reward eventually. But for us, yes, we, we should help people that have maybe physical needs, physical handicaps. Of course, absolutely. Maybe you shoveled snow last week for someone who wasn't able to shovel it. Maybe a neighbor, who knows? Absolutely do that. But some people... It's a spiritual weakness. It's a spiritual poverty, a spiritual injury. They, they've gotten hurt by a church, who knows, whatever. And they're, they're going to take some extra patience. They're going to take some extra work. You're going to be putting some effort, some ministry into that person. And maybe you don't see a reward. And so while you're walking down those golden streets in heaven, and there they are. And because of your ministry, God used it to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I heard this story one time. This was way back in Pennsylvania. Still remember the room I was sitting in when I heard this. But about a homeless man, probably smelled like a homeless man, came in probably dressed like a homeless man, certainly embodying the poverty, maybe even some physical injury like we're reading about here. And he came into church right in the middle of the service apparently and sat about right there. And it wasn't this church. I heard about this in Pennsylvania. I don't know where the church was, but he sat about right there, middle aisle, Obviously, I'm sure feeling awkward, just trying to come to the house of the Lord, trying to learn more about God. Maybe he had a different agenda. Some of you, I'm, I'm sure that's crossing your minds, and maybe it was true. But he's there as an opportunity to be ministered unto. And it was kind of awkward. I think the pastor tried to just keep going like nothing was happening, which is probably the best thing for the pastor to do. And then one church member got up, didn't make a fuss, didn't make a scene, and sat down beside this homeless man. Just something as simple as, hey, you belong here. I'm with you. I'm glad you're here. And just let that homeless man know, we're glad you're here. I'm going to sit with you. I imagine, I don't know, I imagine that had huge impact. I imagine that homeless man, the next time he was wanting to go to church, maybe he sat in a pew that time, I don't know. But I imagine he thought about going to that church, finding that person. I bet you that person invited him home for lunch. I have no idea. I don't know those details of the story. I wasn't told those in the group setting that I heard this story in. But that ministry. Now, for you and me, maybe it's not a homeless person we need to minister to. I have no idea. But maybe it's that person. I don't know if this, is, this even makes sense, but maybe it's a, a spiritually homeless person and, and how they act like that. Boy, they smell spiritually homeless. They're dressed spiritually homeless. You can tell they've got some deep spiritual need, and it's downright disruptive sometimes. And that's the person we can minister to, and we can make a huge difference, and I hope we will. Let's be willing to do real ministry to real people with real needs, 
They really need Jesus just like we do. And that simple point, but it's at the end of this part, eternal rewards are worth far more than temporary rewards. Luke 14, 14. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. When is payday for you? Next, how much power do others have over your ministry? And I struggled with how to word that point. I don't mean it in any weird sense, but uh, how much are you seeking the approval of others? How much are you just seeking your Savior's approval? And if God's happy with your ministry, will you keep going no matter what? Here's Jesus. He's not among friends right here. He's among people who are trying to trip him up, trying to discredit and disqualify him, and he's ministering to them. I love it, starting in verse 15, and we're going to read all the way down through verse 24. I'll make just a couple quick comments as we go, and then we'll look at a few parts um, of this awesome story. Verse 15, it says, When one of them that sat at meat with him, so someone that's eating with Jesus there, heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then uh, Then said he, Jesus, unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time, to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. By the way, you, you probably are familiar with this parable or can even just tell that this is about a little more than just a supper. This is a picture of Jesus inviting everyone to accept his invitation to heaven. And by the way, in our Christian lives, if we come to Jesus, give him everything. Uh, if we, we tell him, as Christians, if we tell him, hey, Jesus, it's all yours. You, you've saved me. I want to serve you with everything I've got. If the oxen are a part of God's plan, God will let you keep the oxen. And if they're not a part of God's plan, he's got something better for you. But this guy cared more about the oxen than the invitation there. And another in verse 20, and another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. What a great opportunity to ask for a plus one. Bring the wife. Let's have her come to this supper as well. Verse 21, so that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, became angry, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, and the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded. And yet there is room. I love the servant in this. We'll talk more about the servant in just a bit. But man, just completely obedient. Just an awesome servant. Verse 23, And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Verse 24, for I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. In this parable, it seems pretty clear as you you just even glance at it, let alone as you study it out. The first ones invited seem clearly to be Israel. I mean, so much in the Old Testament, God extending that invitation, but most of them rejected. Most of the Israelites right there in that room were actively rejecting Jesus. Now, many Israelites, many Jewish people, I've accepted Christ, and I'm so grateful for that. so exciting to see people ministering to Jews. It can be an uphill battle to help them see that Jesus is the Messiah, but I'm so grateful that many have come to Christ. But many rejected, as this parable shows. The second and third set of invitations, at least somewhere in there, clearly seems to indicate the invitation going out to everybody else. I'm not of Jewish descent, so that would include me. 
Gentiles. That's probably most, if not all of us in this room. And what a privilege that our God loves us all and sent out the invitation to everybody as pictured in this parable. And the master having the supper clearly seems to picture God inviting everyone. But the servant, in so many ways, seems to represent Christians fulfilling the Great Commission. Inviting. Sending out the invitation. And I want to notice a couple things about that. First of all, the servant was undeterred by rejection of his service. I mean, this poor guy, he goes out and everybody tells him no. He's not inviting people to work for free. He's not inviting people to come get a whipping. He's inviting them to a dinner, probably a nice one. And they say, no, no, I got something better going on. You ever told someone about Jesus and they had something better going on in their mind? I love that the servant keeps going. He was undeterred. He kept going. He was going to keep doing what his master had for him. He came back, reported how things went, and went out again and again. Next, the servant was successful in ministry for his master, regardless of the response of others. If that servant had gone to the first group, excuse, 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 nobody comes. Gone back, gone to the second group. Thankfully, they came, many of them. But if it was excuse, 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 come back, third group, excuse, Excuse, rejection, excuse. The servant would have still done what he was supposed to do. His ministry would have still been successful. His ministry mindset, that gauge would have been all the way up because he had done his part. His part was not to handcuff and drag people to the dinner. His part was to tell them to invite them. And that's our job, is to tell people to invite them. Their response is up to them. The servant carried the message to everyone. The master wanted it carried to everyone. God wants the message carried to everyone. The Great Commission, let's tell everyone how they can experience that grace that we learned about this morning. Verse 21, one more time, it says, So that, that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. I love the song. I'll just share the title, but I love the song, There's Room at the Cross. And I'll share one line in it. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. And if we'll be willing to minister, to share our faith and to help and to serve and to care about nothing but God getting the credit and the glory, we can make a difference. We can see people come to him. The servant was commanded to compel, not kidnap, but to compel, not just simply ask once and give up. Now, I don't know what compelling looked like there, and I don't know what it might look like for you and for me, but does your witnessing, does your inviting to church look like a simple one-off invitation or compelling? Compelling for some people means getting up extra early, driving over to someone's house really early, waking them up on a Sunday morning until they really realize how awesome God is and how amazing church is, and then they want to come. But it's every week driving that van. It's every week driving that bus. It's every week. It's every week. It's every week to compel them to come, or it's inviting and inviting and inviting. Now, I don't remember where, when I heard this. I think it was in church growing up, and I don't know that I'm completely accurate on this, but I believe I heard one time that some people, it takes up to 14 times of hearing the gospel before they accept. 14 clear explanations. And how many of us quit after 12 or 13? Maybe 14 times. Maybe for someone you know it's been 40. And on the 41st time of you inviting them to church, they'll come. How ministry-minded are you? Does it look like compelling or just hoping? 
A lot of us are excitedly looking forward to the banquet, excitedly looking to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to heaven, to eternity with God. But are we willing to be on the invitation committee? I hope so. Or maybe the first phase we'd be willing to invite people who, you know, are pretty neat and clean and polished. But man, never the highways or hedges. There's sinners over there. And some of them look like it. Great opportunity to minister. Jesus could have said, those people rejected. The servant could have said, hey, these people are rejecting. Forget this. But it wasn't about his relationship with the people. It wasn't about their response. He didn't give them that power over his ministry. He was willing to serve his master, and I hope we will too. And finally, and we won't, will not be going through the entire chapter, don't worry. But our last point, which way are your feet pointing? Not right now. I don't care how you're sitting. Some of you are moving your feet. I don't care how your feet are now. I will not be saying anything about posture or anything in this point. But I've heard it said multiple places that your feet are often the most honest part of your body. You ever stand somewhere talking to someone who's over here and your feet are pointed this way because you want out? Or maybe, maybe you got to keep one foot, but the other foot, you got one foot in the door, one foot out the door, you're, you're leaning away. Notice that in conversations in the next week. You'll, you'll surprise yourself if you're anything like me after the first time I heard that. Feet are surprisingly honest because we don't always realize everything they're saying. But as we look at Luke 14, and we'll look at just a few more verses do we serve God with one foot in the door or one foot out the door? Or are we jumping in with everything we've got? A little surprised I did that without dropping my Bible. I'm proud of myself on that one. But in verse 25, we're going to see that we should love God so much that our love for anything or anyone else simply can't compare or compete. Verse 25, probably a familiar ver couple of verses, says, And there went, out, went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man... Come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. Yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus was not literally saying to, to hate, to want the destruction of our family, but that our love for him would be so focused and so passionate that our love for anything or anyone else would be so much weaker, it would look like hatred. Let's be both feet in, full force, sprinting ahead. Saw this simple picture. It's the next slide, I believe. Um, yeah, I just saw that on social media from a friend of mine shared it, and, and I thought it was convicting. I, I know it might be a little hard to, to read, but on the left, you got, you know, fun, work, exercise, friends, and time with God. And that's how a lot of our lives are. Well, we've got a lot of good things. There's nothing bad on there. In the next, slide, the next part over on the right, there's, there's nothing bad. But time with God's this little wedge. Maybe for you, that's first thing in the morning at, in your bedroom, reading the Bible. Maybe it's Sundays, Wednesdays, who knows? You're here on Sunday night, that's awesome. But it should be more like the right one, where everything is time with God. He allows us to work, and he wants us to work. Allows us to eat. Allows us, wants us to spend formal time in Bible study and prayer. Have friends, exercise, fun. And I mean, your, your circle might have a bunch of other things. But you get the difference. It's everything is all about God. To where if, if it's not helping my relationship, my ministry for God, it can go. Who cares? I love God so much. My, my love for those things looks like hatred in comparison. Simple illustration, but it spoke to me. I hope it's an encouragement to you. We should love God so much that anything for him is worth it. Luke 14, 27 says, And whatsoever, whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross was a symbol of death, pain, shame, and horror. Anything for God should be worth it. So which way are your feet pointing spiritually? 
Not right now. Couldn't care less how you're sitting. Don't think God cares how your feet are pointing right now, but spiritually, are they both pointing full ahead for God? Or is it a little bit for God and this one's uh, a little bit for those other things? And again, our circles, if we're honest, would probably even have some bad stuff in them, have some, a lot of other things. Is it all about God or is it all about those other things and a little bit carved out for God? Let's love God so much that anything is worth it. I love my daughters. I share stories about them sometimes, never to embarrass them. And I hope this one won't embarrass poor Addison. She looks embarrassed now. Anyway, she'll be mad at me for this later. But she has a fun little expression. I love how kids put things. I don't think we always get smarter as we get older. And I don't think we put things better. We put them technically correct like you'd find in a dictionary or, you know, a grammar book or whatever. But the way kids put things is so spot on. But Addison will be meeting, eating a meal. And maybe she wants to be done so she can eat dessert or, you know, something like that. Or maybe she doesn't really like the meal. She's had as much as she wants. And she'll ask this often. Can I be full? I just thought that, was expression. that expression was kind of funny. Can I be full? We look at it. Are, are you full? Um, can you be done? I think is what she means. But I think so often, I, I love it, Addison. I think it's a smart way to put it. But uh, I think so often, we'll read a little bit of our Bible. Work, okay, make money. I'll give a little bit of that to God. Okay, my fun, I'll, I'll give it to God. That I, It won't be sinful, but it's still mine. And we'll say, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing it. Can I be full, God? Is that enough? If it's not everything, it's not enough. How ministry-minded are we? Are we giving everything for God? Which way are your feet pointing? So how ministry-minded are you? Better yet, how can your personal ministry become more like the ministry of our Savior? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for coming to earth and setting us the perfect example of ministry-mindedness. You didn't come to be served. You came to serve. Even now, you help us. You minister to us in so many ways every single day. Help me help each of us to be more and more ministry-minded. Maybe we have some fun this week and we take some time to notice which way our feet are pointed when we're talking to somebody. Uh, Maybe when there's a lot on our minds and we have somewhere else we need to be. But maybe take some time this week to notice which way our spiritual feet are pointed. And may we become fully committed to you, both feet in, serving you, ministering to you and the people you love with everything we've got. And I pray that you'll use it. Maybe we see the rewards before heaven. Maybe we don't. May, they, may fruit be there for the work, the ministry you give us to do. Thank you that when we minister for you, we minister with you, and you're right there with us. I pray that you'll go with us this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.